Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. <laughs> okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a gallery. place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> a man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You snake through the city, well, immersing yourself in the sights, sounds, songs, For the songs, Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. (laughs) The tone with which Boris has announced it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. It'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, it's Friday, January the 18th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, when I was told that we we're going to be recording today at the BBC offices in Marylebone High Street, I, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it, it frankly wasn't this. We are in um, a, a complex that I'm told is going to be sold off within the next month or so, strewn with props. It is possibly one of the most random experiences I've had recently. With me are Callum Thorpe, who is a singer and musician, and Oliver Clark, who is into musical administration, and we've been speculating as to what musical administration might be very tuneful filing perhaps good morning you both good morning nice morning. to see you we should start by explaining what we're doing here we are here rehearsing for a operatic production a new production of monteverdi's l'orfeo which is being performed by silent opera callum's going to be performing in it and i am sort of working behind the scenes putting the pieces together and the jigsaw together and we're here rehearsing and we're performing at trinity boy wharf in east london opening next week wednesday on the 23rd of january now what's the association with trinity wharf it's all connected with with the guilds and so forth for the better navigation of the coasts of england and it's housed the famous company responsible for boys lighthouses light ships and pioneering techniques involved in those things it says here can't see any obvious connection with opera i think maybe that was part of the appeal that silent opera what we do it's not necessarily traditionally operatic it's 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 alternative and we wanted a space which was ideally set on a river we're doing orfeo and the river is a huge part of that and we wanted the atmosphere of it and we went we looked at various venues and we went in there and we were just struck by the position and everything about it seemed to fit with the piece and the vision that we wanted to do with it so this is a venue specific uh, performance as well yeah absolutely mm-hmm. 
It is. It is a great venue for the for the the, the piece. Actually, I mean, it's very atmospheric, and and it's you, you sort of walk there, and it really doesn't feel like you're in in central London at all. I mean, you can see you can see the dome, and you can see Canary Wharf, and those things, but somehow you feel a little bit apart from it. It feels a little bit almost a bit forgotten from the rest of the rest of the city. And how advanced are you at this point in the rehearsals? I wandered in through a rehearsal earlier on and it's very difficult to tell without the costumes and so forth to the, the lay eye. Are you, are you sort of ready to go or still a, a way off? I, I think we're getting there. Um, we open in a, in a week, so um, so we're in, we're in a fairly good place, I think. Um, obviously, we're still rehearsing out here in the studios in central London, so I think we're moving to the, the venue this afternoon. And uh, hopefully we'll get some costumes, and the set should be in. And, and of course, it takes it to a whole different, a whole different place once you have the uh, once you have the, all the paraphernalia that go with it. But, uh, that must be very exciting. And you're, you're, uh, you, you mentioned you're a musician, but what is your instrument, or uh, what are your instruments? I, I'm a singer. I'm, I, I'm a singer. I sing mainly mainly opera or concert work, but all classical classical music. Well, we'll be hearing more from the director of Silent Opera, Daisy Evans, later on and she'll be giving us uh, an in-depth look at what this performance entails. We're going to move to the week's news and of course the, the week's news in London has been tragically um, dominated by the helicopter crash that happened a couple of days back in Vauxhall um, and, and really uh, still investigations uh, ongoing there. We're going to focus on some other news though and uh, well, let's start in Westminster possibly my favourite borough council in London and um, I almost want to start we, we almost need a jingle or something to introduce the Westminster a kind of mournful jingle <laughs> what are Westminster council up to at the moment Callum I think the most perhaps the most interesting news here is this uh, challenging on the EU sex shop ruling I don't know maybe maybe Ollie you're better placed to uh, to answer this than me um, <laughs> sorry I, I'm intrigued by that reference <laughs> I am as well you're not the only one <laughs> Um, yes, this is extremely curious uh, about um, Westminster Council launching a legal challenge against a European Union directive uh, preventing licence fees paid by owners of legitimate sex shops being used for enforcement against illegal shops. I'm, I'm very inexperienced in the London sex shop trade. I don't know how this will affect uh, uh, customers or indeed proprietors. But um. What this boils down to, as far as I can see, is the right under debate is the ability to charge officially licensed sex shops uh, quite a lot of money to police getting rid of the sex shops that have been set up illegally or, or illicitly and the sum in question is £29,000 per year per shop that's how much Westminster Council wants the right to reclaim from licensed sex shops now I've no idea what the average sex shop makes but what about the principle behind it is this a good way of uh, dealing with trading offences do you suppose why should they be subject to different laws from any other any other business I mean if you if you run a clothing business or a food business you would expect uh, illegal proprietors or illegal premises to be closed down automatically and, and you wouldn't expect to be charged for the privilege so I'm not sure that this is, uh, should be subject to any different laws at all. Whether or not you find the, the existence of these shops distasteful or exciting is, is, is beside the, the buy, I think. Yeah, but I suppose what you, you have to, we have to also say is that the proprietor of the sex shop, they're all saying the fees are disproportionate and comparing them to, for instance, something like a nightclub. I mean, you can, you can see what their point is. I mean, it, it's very different. Sex shop, we're talking thousands and thousands of pounds. Nightclub, we're talking maybe a thousand pounds, but 
it's not really at the same level. Yes, £1,905 if you're a nightclub owner, that's what you're going to get charged to boot out yeah. illegal nightclubs. What seems to come through with Westminster Council is they're very, very keen on finding excuses to uh, fine people and take money off mm-hmm. people. It ties in with one of the other stories we've got going on this week. Which is the... Um Typical. I'm a victim of this, I have to say. Um, the Westminster Council profiting from parking charges and cutting ro- this, this money we're spending on keeping the roads safe. Yes, well, let's start with your story, Ali. What, uh, what happened to you? Oh, well, no. I mean, I was, I was, it wasn't actually me. The first time it wasn't me. I have a friend and she has one of these wonderful electric cars and supposedly she gets free parking with her electric car in the borough of Westminster. Is that right? And indeed it is. They're quite, it's quite a cute little car, but it doesn't go very fast. The, um, but she was given a parking ticket and she wasn't supposed to have one. And she was never, she went through the proper procedure, say, well, I have an electric car and the rule changed and no one had ever told her. So that was the start of it. But I'm afraid I'm not very good. I'm always parking on yellow lines. I'm not a very good law-abiding citizen when it comes to that. So I'm always late. Is it your general experience, and of course we don't have to look at Westminster Council specifically on this question, but is it your experience that um, the parking measures are on the wrong side of merely being efficient? Well, I, th- I think you could probably say there's an argument for both. I- I- I'm I've, The yellow peril I was always grown up to call them when you get the parking ticket and I've always hated them and you always avoid them and I always feel awful when I see them doing it to someone else's car because normally that person is probably just five minutes late for whatever reason and I think maybe they should be try and find a way to make it slightly fairer so that the, the circumstances in which it happens are understood and maybe the penalty shouldn't be as extreme. Sure, we have some of the numbers here. What are we talking about in terms of the revenue raised and the revenue invested, Callum? Well, it seems that Westminster is the uh, the highest earning council with uh, their revenue up to thirty eight million from two thousand ten two thousand and eleven, which is a rise of eight point seven percent. And we have a quote here from uh, the, the Labour head of Westminster, Paul uh, Dimoldenberg who says that they are using it to subsidise the council tax and have been for decades. I was quite surprised at the boldness of that quote. I mean, I, I think we know that that stuff goes on, but he seems quite proud of the fact that the that uh, anyone setting foot inside Westminster is potentially going to be funding the residents there. Yes, he does, and... I can understand entirely that I think uh, that council finances have to depend on fines and people who do uh, park recklessly or, or illegally should pay fines and it's quite right that these should help the borough. But I wonder to the extent at which a borough seems to be dependent on on parking fines in order to make ends meet and 38 million or 50 million as he puts in the quote here seems to be an awful lot of money to to depend on coming from random a random income essentially. Yes, interesting dissimilarity there between the figures. 38 million uh, quoted 2010 to 11, and uh, the head of the council saying 50 million. Um, I notice as well he mentions profit. Uh, other councils mention that it's a surplus, but he is actually calling it a profit. There's something very worrying about that. This is this is parking law. This is not supposed to be a profitable business, surely. Yeah. Let's look at the uh, investment side of things, though. The Institute of Advanced Motorists say that spending on road safety, education, and safe routes to schools it decreased by 18% from uh, 127.5 million to just 105 million. That's about 22 million down right across the UK. Westminster countered that the Institute of Advanced Motorists figures are wrong. 
don't take into account uh, the high level of retail and entertainment visitors maybe going to some of those sex shops and uh, the surplus is spent on improving roads transport and infrastructure whereas just a minute ago i thought we were told it was about council tax more broadly some very confusing stuff going on here what about crime generally i know we've got uh, unfortunately far too many crime stories going on at the moment we've had assaults we've had uh, what about mobile phones oh well, no i remember twice I, I mean i must be a very naive person i was i was in the same coffee shop about 18 months apart with a friend and uh, my phone was on the table we were chatting away and somebody came up and put a map over the table and said how do i get to this place and being a kind citizen normally i said oh well, you have to go turn right turn left whatever and anyway as she then left and went out the door i said to my friend oh she went the wrong way i didn't think anything of it 20 minutes later i couldn't find my phone and then i realized what had happened well i should have learned the lesson but then 18 months later almost to the well not to the day because it was 18 months but 18 months later the same thing happened again i was taken in by the same thing and i can't believe how stupid i am but and but not having a mobile phone having a phone stolen losing a phone is terrible when it's stolen it's such an invasion because you can't live without it you've lost numbers you've lost everything okay we can back it up on a laptop but i'm very bad i don't back my phone up very often mm, yes it's quite crippling isn't it even if you just leave it at home for a day it's um it's yeah, like having your left arm cut off yes i think i think you don't realize how how dependent we've become on on, on these gadgets until you you don't have them with you for a day do you know i've i've just taken myself off facebook just as a just as a, an experiment really and my daily phone usage has gone down by about 50 percent. i think my my iphone battery lasts for a full two days now instead of running out around tea time so i, I feel i sort of want to welcome you across to a, to a, a, a club with a very small membership i must say no it's true i couldn't live without facebook now well, Sorry. this is the problem. I think you no, become totally that, but dependent I also, on it. But I, I, I divide my time between Twitter and Facebook. But Twitter is actually easier to do on the phone because it's much simpler. You just press the button and it goes. Whereas Facebook, you have to wait for the page to load and all of it goes on and on and on. Do you have uh, sort of profession-specific stuff that you uh, use on your phone? Well, I think the the musical profession and especially the sort of the singer community is very is a very small really quite close-knit community most people know know everybody else and so facebook is naturally the sort of thing that people gravitate to because you can very easily keep in touch with what is really quite a small world anyway um so that's it you're an outcast now yeah i feel like i may have committed professional suicide by by by, by taking it off but i thought I'd, I'd give it a go it's been uh, been an interesting interesting test I'm very tempted to try it myself. This whole uh, idea of people coming up to your table. I was in a Starbucks one time, and I can say that because the Starbucks were in no way at fault, but there was a community support officer, a rather overzealous type, um, who was going around uh, table by table and covering up the... He only seemed to be targeting single women, actually. And he he would cover up their phone in exactly the way you've described and then uh, very proudly announce that he could have just stolen the phone. And the counter-argument to that is, yes, but you're a community support officer, so... Uh, you know, you've taken it up to the next level yourself by, with the uniform. Do you know we had a security guard exactly like that at university who used to walk around the library covering up people's laptops and people's wallets and things. And again, if you see someone in a uniform walking past, you don't really expect to have to keep an eye on them uh, or watching your back pocket all the time. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it's a valid, no, uh, a valid demonstration. No, there must be something better he could have been doing with his time. I'm sorry. I mean, there's people dying and there's crime and there's ev- everywhere. People are getting mugged on the tube. There must be something else that he could be doing other than warning people. I mean, we all have to be vigilant but we live in a world where we're surrounded by people who maybe aren't so pleasant in their moral compass let's put it like I, that i think his motivation was revealed by uh, I, I had my phone sitting there on the table and he took one look at me and just went no, no and moved on 
<laughs> it's the don't mess with me beard. That's what it is. Could <laughs> be. What else have we got to talk about? Um, any other happy story? Let's do London's a happy story. Dullest wall. Nominating London's dullest wall for a street art makeover. Um, so the people at Global Street Art are looking to find new places for street artists to paint with the permission of the owners. And I think this is a. Um, I think this is a wonderful idea. I think that. Um, I think that good street art can be can be really fascinating, and it really brightens up. Um, brightens up the streets and brightens up your commute to work or what have you and I think that it's I think this is a wonderful thing this is a bit of a marmite issue street art isn't it some people just cannot stand looking at it and however elegant or carefully crafted or clever the graffiti is it's still graffiti in a lot of people's eyes and their their garish colours and so forth don't go down well with them well perhaps but I think it's slightly a question of context as well if you happen to be uh, wandering through an underpass or a subway and you see it sort of scrawled all over the walls then then maybe it's it's more threatening than anything else but I think that if you're if you're in a more sort of developed or, or, or more populated area and you see something that's obviously obviously taken a lot of time a lot of effort that's required an, in, an investment from the, the the part of the artist then I, I don't know I find that very uh, very interesting and, and, and worth looking at where would you go to look at street art in town I'd like to be surprised I would like to... Uh, well, I think, I I think like Callum's the... just nominated his wall. <laughs> <laughs> I like the... Uh, when you walk along the South Bank, there's that place just after Festival Hall and all of that area there where there's... It's amazing, and there are people... I don't know what we call them. We call them... They, they're people that ride bikes, and they, they spray-paint things. And it's actually amazing. You go and look, and it's incredible. I mean, oh, I All those... Uh, the BMX guys and the yeah, skateboarders. I mean, I wouldn't want it at home or on my garden fence, but... When you're walking past there, I'd rather see something pretty and colourful than I would just see a blank grey wall. I, I honestly don't know. I, I don't think I'd have a, an objection to it on my own wall. I think um, the problem is when you when you sort of wake up in the morning and feel that there have been people people lurking places, spraying things where, where maybe you wouldn't want them to be doing that. That might be uh, more of a problem than... <laughs> I'm not sure it's the right thing for London. We're very traditional in London. If we were in Berlin, I mean, look, this is saying that it was actually a German paint company. They were called Montana, and they gave a global street art. They gave it 100 cans of paint to help like, make the city pretty. I mean, it seems like quite a, a Deutsch thing to do, for want of a better expression. I mean, in England, we're so traditional, and we frown upon these kind of things so much. But it's quite exciting and quite different. You, really, do you think we are so traditional? I mean, and we, I noticed you said England there, but in London, are we are we so traditional? I think that London is different from from maybe the rest of the UK. I think it's uh, a bit more cosmopolitan and a bit more uh, open to outside influence. But I think the UK generally can be a little bit uh, can have a little bit of an island mentality, which might um, m- might manifest itself as traditionalism sometimes. Hmm. I sometimes wonder whether London's got an island mentality, but I don't <laughs> think it's a conservative island. <laughs> Oliver, what about you? Where would you go for decent street art? Um, I think they should. I'd like them to have more of it around the Barbican because I find going to the Barbican a bit like being in a concrete jungle. So I think if we could liven it up a bit, that would be rather fun. Callum has just been taken off to rehearsal. We're down to two. I, I could be talking to myself by the end of the show if you if you get called off as no, well. No, I won't be called off. I'm all yours, I promise you. But <laughs> when we were talking about he was very unkind, Callum, because he made reference that I would be more, more knowledgeable about the sex shots. But in this show we're doing, this L'Orfeo for Silent Opera, his character, Plutone, we are actually playing the character as a little bit of a sex fiend. So, you know, I'm, I slightly resent that I was given all the blame. I adore the fact that you've waited for him to leave the room before you do that. Oh, no, even though, no, even though this is going out. No, he's taller than me. I'm, I'll say it when he's not here. It's fine. He won't mind. <laughs> I won't be judged. Oh, you will. Okay, um, probably, yes. 
let's uh, let's go up the shard. The view from the shard, and that's the name of it. It's not uh, it's not just the thing. It's the, it's the name of the. No, it's called uh, the, the view platform. from the shard. Yeah, and uh, it's it's been open, or not just open, but the embargo on news stories has been lifted. So now we can talk about it and show the pictures and so forth. Our very own Matt Brown went up the shard and had a look out, and he has given a report on Londonist.com of what he thought. It varies wildly from the standard press release, so this is well worth a look. Just have a look at inside the view from the shard on Londonist.com. The standout figure for me was uh, that the price, £25, okay, uh, not cheap, but uh, sort of what you'd expect perhaps. But if you don't book and you want an on-the-spot ticket, £100 to go up the shard. Well, it wouldn't be for me. I mean, I wouldn't spend £100 on it, but I think for £25 I would probably... I would take the bat and go up because, you know, you should, we should make an effort and see these things once in a But £100, no, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be for me. So what's the general tenor of Matt's report here? Well, first of all, I've got to say everyone should read it because it's very funny. I mean, you start reading it and you're not sure what to make of it and then it actually begins to make you smile and it actually makes me think, actually, I've got to go up there. Having just said it, I don't know if it would appeal. I'm going to pay my £25 and go up there. But there's some things in the port which just I thought were, were wonderful. I, I love this fact that you can go up, the, you don't have a time limit that you've got to be up there, but you're sitting up there but no there's nothing to drink there's nothing to eat there's nothing to do anything i find that hysterical you know we're sending these people up there for 25 pounds we're not even giving them a cup of tea and a biscuit i mean in the great english tradition that we were talking about earlier we should really give them that and then i love this i'm going to read it aloud because i think everyone should read it i don't have real uh, much of a toilet humor but it just made me laugh where matt says the toilets are going to be a major talking point full stop well we, we know what's going to come we can't think of any other carsy in the capital where you can take a dump while watching the tourists potter around on hms belfast i thought that was a hysterical and i am going up there yes i've heard about these famous toilets that allow you to look out whilst relieving yourself no it's rather fun and rather novel why not it's a bit different isn't it it's sort of why not but the other thing is i've just come back from um a trip to cape town and they're saying that we matt was picked a day when you couldn't see very much the visibility wasn't very good and you'd pay 25 pounds i was in cape town recently and when you go up table mountain which it's a different view it's a natural monument but it's you know, you, you, if the visibility is going to be bad, they don't open the mountain. You can't go up there. And maybe we need to think along those lines. I think it might be better, you know, because we're charging people all this money to go up there. But you might go up there and see absolutely nothing. Yeah, they do agree to uh, allow you to change the day of your visit if the weather is really disastrously bad. But uh, no refunds, unfortunately, if the cloud cover prevents you from seeing what's going on down below. There's also a little bit of controversy about the accuracy uh, well, it's not really controversy, it's just uh, the, the accuracy of the digital viewfinders that are on the top of the shard there. They detail a whole bunch of things around town, but uh, they've got it wrong. So uh, central St Giles, for example, has been moved over to Shoreditch. Uh, St Dunstan in the east becomes St Dunstons. The ancient fortifications are labelled as Roman's Wall, whatever that's supposed to be. Remarkably slapdash, given the expense that went into the construction of the building overall. A little bit slapdash. My mother would have said that it was a man who wrote it all out. That would have been the thing. If it had been in a woman's hands, it would never have happened. But the other thing which I have to say, which Matt does mention in the report, is that it's £25 is a lot of money, but it is on a par with places that so many people go to in London, like the dungeons, like Madame Tussauds, as Matt says, you know, so it's something different, it's bringing new people to London, people want to go out there and see London in a different way, that's a wonderful thing. Well, as you know, audible.co.uk sponsors Londonist Out Loud, and they are offering you a free digital audiobook from their catalogue. Uh, 60,000 digital audiobooks on offer their 30-day free trial of the Audible service is all you need to sign up for to get your free audiobook, and of course you can download that onto any device that you see 
fit. Uh, apart from washing machines, you're definitely not allowed to download it onto those. Uh, you don't want a soggy story. You can burn your uh, book to a CD, you can listen to it in the car, and it's yours to keep whether you decide to cancel in your trial period or not. All you need to get that free audiobook is to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Before we go back to the stories, I, I wanted to say uh, thank you for the many guest suggestions that have been coming in from you, the listener. Uh, my favourite one uh, so far, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's come all the way from Kentucky. So Rob Mayer, I want to thank you particularly for that suggestion. Which part of town do you live in, Oliver? I live in Battersea. I'm just I'm going to just scan down my list of uh, fire stations here, because if we can spot the, the, any of these uh, relevant to you, because it's not good news on the fire stations front here. We've got the, the planned fire station closures list, which has been released, and this comes on the back of police station closures and uh, A&E closures that we've been mentioning in uh, very recent weeks. Under the new plans, 12 of London's fire stations will be closed. 18 fire engines will go out of service. They're going to move a couple of them around and there will be 520 fewer firefighters uh, and that, the, the plan there is to save £45.5 million pounds over the next couple of years Is your area affected, can you say? Um, not directly, I see there's one in I've seen one, there's on the list there's one in Clapham and uh, I also, I went, I studied at the Royal College of Music and I think there's one in Kensington and Chelsea in Knightsbridge which was near there and another one down in Chelsea so it's that from there were two fire engines in the in Chelsea and now there's only one but I go past it every day on the bus and I, I just think it's very sad you know that uh, it, is it happening because people don't want to do these jobs anymore but we seem to have so much unemployment and so many people in the country who are not necessarily gainfully employed well we should be trying to help these people take on jobs like this and putting back into the country I mean if we support them then maybe we have to have a little bit more choice in what they're going to be doing and what they're doing to pay us back it does seem remarkable and I I can't help wondering as well, because there are a couple of places here where you notice the names of areas overlapping with some of the previous closures. So, for example, we were losing the A&E in Lewisham, and here on the list we find that the fire station in Newcross, serving Lewisham, is also closing. Uh, but you hope you don't live in Lewisham. Well, uh, you, rather, if yes. If we have a fire, we're doomed. Now, one of the misconceptions we, we should point out here is that um, the fire engine that attends the fire that we hope you don't have in uh, your house, listener, mm-hmm. is going to come from your local fire station. And in fact, there's a very good chance that your local one will be attending a hoax call somewhere or something like that. And the fire appliances from one of the other stations will come to your place so it doesn't necessarily affect you well you can't help thinking that this has got to be bad news uh, no, it's generally just, it's just sad really i mean you know we i live in um near where i live there is a fire station if i think about it it's not mentioned on here but they have in the they have in the in the back of the fire station they have a building which they've erected which is obviously for them to practice and for them to do drills in and you, i've walked past and i've seen them doing these drills and these people work so hard and you know they provide such an amazing service they save lives and they're a little bit forgotten, and now we seem to be doing away with them. And what do we do to replace these people? I don't know. This I found quite interesting. Some insight given here into the speed at which fire appliances are likely to reach you. So the idea is that uh, the, the, the target is to get the first fire engine to come to you within six minutes and the second within eight. And then they measure how many fire engines they need according to their estimates of how long it takes to get the uh, engines to you within those time frames they've actually moved a couple of fire engines across four of the boroughs that have an average first response time of over six minutes they're getting an extra engine which uh, should help a little bit 
worrying, of course. Should we finish on a lighter note? There must be a lighter note here. So, oh yes, um, off with your trousers. Oh, this is. To, I wish I, I didn't take the tube on what day was it? it was on monday i didn't take the tube on monday and i wish i had or i wish I, somebody had told me this was going to happen because i didn't know but it was no pants on the tube day 2013 so. no, no we, we, we should just say this is a, the american usage of pants oh sorry it's a, it's an americanism i have to back back that up it's not english it's a very american because we call them trousers in this country not pants and um but ha- what happened was a hundred people on Monday, Monday the 14th of January, for the London leg, we call it, the London leg of the no pants, brackets, trousers, if we're English, on the tube 2013. This was conceived in 2002 by Improv Everywhere. They were called the Prank Collective. And it aims, apparently, to cause scenes of chaos and joy in public places. Well, basically what happened was there were 100 people on the London tube. They were wearing their underwear, but they weren't wearing anything else on the lower part of their body. Well, they were braver than me because they would have frozen to death. Um, yes, it's a curious time of year to have the no trousers Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's the point, but I think it's a bit cruel. I mean, it wouldn't have done for me. My legs would have turned blue. Well, yes, I mean, it, it doesn't uh, flatter all sorts of uh, lower body anatomy. To, no, exactly. To be... No, everything's shrunken. Um, <laughs> thank you for, for nailing that down for us. Um, I, I wonder what the point of this is, really. I mean, I do understand the idea of joy, but uh, I'm just trying to imagine seeing a hundred people shivering a bit with well, you know, with morning, no trousers on. Is, is that is that going to spread joy? <laughs> I don't know, but this morning I was on the tube and there was a man in shorts. Not shorts, they were sort of cut off trousers, so they went below the knee and I thought he must be mad. Well, maybe he was just recovering from Monday when he... It must have been a lot warmer if he'd done it on Monday when he just had his underwear on. But I think if I'd seen it, it actually would have made me smile and I think January is pretty grim and we've had, although the sun is shining through my window now this lovely Friday morning. But it's a bit gloomy January, so if you see something that makes you smile it's always a bonus am i a bit repressed i think i'd have found it a bit threatening well it would depend on the face that went with the underwear <laughs> i think that that would be i wouldn't be threatened by a pair of legs but depending on the face that went with them maybe i too would have been threatened but i'd like to think that maybe i would have smiled well with no link at all i would like to take you back to an interview that i did with uh, daisy evans earlier on we were speaking about silent operas L'Orfeo. Here with uh, Daisy Evans, we are shivering in the cold of the abandoned BBC <laughs> building. There's quite a draft coming through here, I'm afraid. Yes, it's quite damp in here as well, so it's overall quite hellish conditions, which I think is appropriate for Monteverdi's Orfeo. How is this working for the performers, though? Are they uh, are they coping with the with the environment here? Yeah, so we've got quite industrial heaters upstairs, so they're all right. It's just in in the wilds of my office. It's not it's not brilliant. Uh, I'm enjoying all the the props around it. Let's start with the the story of Orfeo. So the story of Orfeo follows the classic original Ovid, which is um, Orfeo and Eurydice get married, and they're, they're, we open at their wedding feast. And Eurydice goes out one last time to look at the stars outside and a horrendous thunder electric storm brews and she gets struck by lightning and she dies very, very quickly. Orfeo, in the meantime, is having a great time with his boys, singing his songs, having a, having a general kind of party. And then a messenger comes in and tells him that 
Yudice is dead and the entire atmosphere is completely shattered. And Orfeo, instead of questioning um, and accepting the fortune, says, well, actually, okay, I'm just going to go down to hell and get her back because I'm Orfeo, I'm half god, I can do it. Um, so then he, he goes to the river Lethe, um, which is uh, the waters of which wipe out your memory. Um, the concept being that to go to, to hell, you have to be completely stripped of your ambition, your hope, your knowledge, everything. So we find on the, on the banks of Lethe, we see Caronte, who is the spirit that guards the gates of hell. And he's sort of feverishly gathering memories from people. And Orfeo comes and says to him, you've got to let me across. And he says, I can't, you have a mortal body. So Orfeo sings him the, the, the great set piece in the middle of Act 3, Pocente Spiritu, which is the, the big aria. And through that, he conjures up the image of Eurydice for Caronte. And Caronte is kind of blinded and seduced by this beautiful image. And he um, momentarily forgets his duties to guard the gate. And Orfeo sneaks across the river and gets into hell. And then in Hell, which is the fourth act, um, we see Pluto and Proserpina, the, the king and queen of Hell. And Proserpina um, begs Pluto to let Eurydice go, to let Orfeo have her back, because he's singing so sweetly and he's crying and she, she wants to help him. And is she seduced by the music or is she simply being benevolent? Um, well, there's a whole backstory with, with Proserpina um, that she herself was actually was a nymph and like Eurydice and was um, gathering flowers one day and, and Pluto bl- blasted forth from from hell and, um, and raped her and took her down as his queen and, and she's trapped there with him. So we're sort of going down the line that because she was denied sunlight, she sees this almost her life playing out again and she so desperately doesn't want it to happen that she sort of seduces P- Pluto into letting her go and say, well, look, you've got me. You don't need Eurydice. You've got me. Let her go. Like, don't don't let this horrendous fortune happen again. So, um, so he says, okay. And then he says, but he has to walk out of hell and not look back, which would seem like an incredibly simple condition to put on it. But actually, Pluto knows that Orfeo is not strong like a god. He knows that Orfeo has the human weakness to question and the human weakness of, of doubt. So he says, OK, he can walk back, but he's got to not look back. And Proserpina says, OK, well, thank you very much. And um, then Orfeo starts to walk out of hell. Very jaunty music. Um, and then he's walking around and then suddenly he has a kind of short, sharp shock of, hang on, what if she's actually not following? What if it's a joke and she's not behind me at all? And he starts to question, and but why? But why am I doing this? Why am I here? And then is the fatal look back. And he turns over his shoulder and there she is, but fading. And he's lost her forever. So he, he kind of, you know, he gets dragged out of hell. Hell expels him. And then we open the final act and he's, you know, lamenting on the, on the, on the banks of the, of the river that he crossed earlier. And he says, oh, how could I ever love women ever again? And there's Bacchae, who are the um, crazed gods of, of Dionysus. They're walking around and they hear him damn women. And this is where the most interesting part of silent opera um, comes in, of this particular interpretation of Orfeo, because anyone who knows the story of Orfeo will know that the original ending is that when he comes out of hell, he says, I can never, never love women again. There's no one as perfect as Eurydice. And the Bacchae hear him and they tear him to pieces. For, his, for saying that he hates women. They, that's it. He's dead. 
Now, Monteverdi wrote this ending um, in 1607 and he took it to the court and they said, oh, I'm really sorry, Monteverdi, that is too violent for the court, the ladies of court to watch. You have to go away and write a happy ending. So he said, oh, OK. And he went away and he wrote a happy ending where his dad, Apollo, the sun god, comes down and takes him into heaven to look down from the stars and be forever with Eurydice in heaven. So we've still the only only the libretto survives of the of the original Bacchic ending. So what we've done is we actually give one lucky audience member who holds a golden ticket the choice between two endings. So we stop right at the end of Orpheus Lament and there's this big hellish atmosphere is built up and the character of Musica um, asks the person for the choice and they say either save him or damn him. And then in a split second we pick up with which, whichever ending the person chooses. So save him or damn him. The choice is yours. That's, that's wonderful. One. The, the, so you're the emperor with the thumb hovering yes, uh, really. on the horizontal. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's really exciting because, of course, we've all heard the, the idea of, of him having not to look back. Yeah. But I haven't heard that, that mm. idea that he gets ripped to pieces yes. because of damning women. And I mean, it seems a, a little bit muddle-headed because yeah. a lot of the classical myths treat sort of rape and things like that in a very offhand uh, sort of fashion and yet that's the that's what the Bacchae feel about damning women that's peculiar isn't it well the Bacchae are women they're all women they're all crazed women followers of Dionysus and they kind of um, they 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 don't generally tear tear apart men in general but they do sort of destroy men as part of this kind of sexual orgy kind of um sort of lust oh so it is orgiastic rather than uh, punishment straight punishment um they 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 kill they kill specific men for punishment in the original Bacchic myth they kill Pentheus and they tear off his head so it it does reference that with the death of Orpheus fascinating okay so clearly the uh, choice of endings is a very interesting way has that got precedent well i think it's it's just a, it's a it's a great way for us to to find an interesting ending because i think actually funnily with this piece the ending feels very peculiar in its original setting it does that I think that's the problem with Orfeo that what you know everyone knows it up until he looks back and then where do you go from there it's such a huge moment of kind of dramatic tension and and crux that really you know it should just be cut there and you know but what does happen to Orfeo his life has to end somehow so that's that's the choice that we give you like did will he be saved as a as uh, a god like his father or he'll will he be killed as the mortal that he is quite clearly opera suffers i'm going to say suffers maybe benefits i don't know from uh, the image of elitism mm-hmm. along with ballet and uh, fine art is this designed really to bring something new to opera to, to sort of break down some of these barriers i would say what i really want to do is to bring opera to something new because opera is it's like you know it is just the most one of one of the most beautiful um dramatic art forms i think you know the music is just exquisite the you know the the emotion it's it's not opera itself which is actually elitist because if you show someone what an opera is like a lot of the time they will they'll appreciate it it's not like oh i think what what is stopping people from going to the opera is the the experience of going to the opera and all that's available to us nowadays is to spend a lot on a ticket and go and sit in a plush auditorium um be separated by a huge gap of an orchestra pit and just be separated from that from that intense emotion and it can feel very daunting so all i all i was trying to do the original seed of this was just to find a way where people who would go you know to to interesting things would would may not go to the opera house would 
come come to see opera just in a completely different setting. So, so what is that setting? How does yours differ? So ours is. Um, well, it's, it's by the banks of the Thames. It's in an, well, not an abandoned, but a completely empty, desolate uh, old chain store, complete open warehouse. Um, and, you know, every ticket price is the same. There's no hierarchy. You walk in, you stand, there's no seating. Or the one, there is seating, but it's not sort of, you know, it's not regular seating. You sort of find a place to sit and, and, and enjoy the opera from there. And then you walk from space to space. So it's, um, it's, it's site specific. Um, and, you know, you, you're, there's no there's no obligation for you to adhere to the rules of of a of an opera house which is also what silent opera has is you know it doesn't matter if the person next to you is kind of crackling a sweet wrapper or chatting to their friend or doesn't matter what they're doing because you you can just simply get up and walk away from them or you can put your headphones on and not listen um yeah, we need to talk about this headphones bit mm. because this is quite innovative as well isn't it can, can you talk us through what you're doing there well i mean to, to lead straight on from that from the setting that we're we're in this place i mean where could you put an orchestra in a site-specific venue that's that's a big problem of opera and why it hasn't become site-specific sooner i believe so then i got to thinking about you know you know how how can you do that without then cutting out everyone without doing a you know a a reduction an orchestral reduction so without actually cutting out the whole orchestra and saying well i'm going to replace it with three flutes and an oboe Mm. you actually say well yes we'll record everything that needs to be recorded and then have live in the space as few musical forces as you need so you still get the complete opera and then i thought well instead of just putting it through the speakers and just kind of making a pretend acoustic atmosphere to then use that as a further level and put everything through headphones so to give everyone this kind of unique personal world that they can really you know it doesn't matter where you are you can walk around and it feels like it's just for you it feels very unique and very personal yeah so it's the uh, let me get it be clear it's the music coming through to you then the, the performers voices uh something separate and real real world mm-hmm. so what we have is we have a, what's called a continuo section and all the singers and they are all they all have uh, in-ear monitors that give them what's pre-recorded and then they they perform live and they're all equipped with microphones so everything then is mixed in a sort of central brain nerve center and then sent back to the audience so what the audience hear is a kind of complete mix down of the whole opera, you know, with violins, horns, cornets, everything. But what's actually, but then you take the headphones off and someone might be miles away from you right across the other end of the space um, and might be only one, one theorbo playing. So it's very skeletal on one hand, but very full on the other. That's very exciting. And have you tried this technique before? Yeah, we've done two productions before. Um, we started off with Dido and Aeneas um, two years ago. And then this time last year, we recorded the University of London Symphony Orchestra doing um, the, the the music for La Boheme. So that was that was um, a kind of total total sound world in the headphones. That one. I was starting to think it was all about doomed couples. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow! <well. laughs> yeah. Now, what about the? Uh, I, I noticed that you're not carrying in your hands clumps of your own hair, so I'm presuming things aren't going too badly at the moment. You you're roughly on track, I presume. Well, we are on track. I mean, it, you know, this a particular type of staging. You know, whether it, you know doesn't matter if it's us or any anything that relies on an audience. There's always going to be that final hurdle of, of opening night where you let the audience in and suddenly everything changes because people can't stand where you where you told them to stand you know they have to really think on their feet so at the moment we're in a really good place if we were going to do it and we had three people watching and you know and we haven't 
I haven't put the technical with it yet. So we've got we've got all the tech to go, and we've got the audience to go. So they're two big hurdles still to go in a week. Well, best of luck. I, I know you're moving to the uh, the venue this afternoon, aren't you? And, and you're, you're trying it out there. Yes, we are. Well, I, I hope all goes well. And thanks for taking the... the t- I know it's kind of precious time at the moment, so thank you for taking time out, Daisy Evans. Thank you very much. Daisy Evans there, and of course the Lofeo project, well it's about a week away as we were saying earlier. Do you, do you know the exact dates and times, Oliver Clark? I do. We open on Wednesday the 23rd of January 2013, and the show runs six shows a week through to the Sunday the 10th of February at Trinity Boy Wharf in London. Tickets can be booked at www.silentopera.co.uk, and the statistics are amazing. I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to come on board because this medium opera, which I was passionate about, you know, it's bringing it. This is a way young people are excited about it. People are going to the opera who've never been to the opera before. I mean, it's putting it out of the theatre and putting it into the psyche. It's an amazing way of presenting opera. It's a revolutionary way of doing it. It's new. It's exciting. If you've never been to an opera before, don't be frightened. Come and do it our way and then just enjoy the journey and see what you think. But it's a Trinity Boy Wharf opening on the 23rd of January and we'd love to see as many people there as possible old opera lovers people who've never been before whoever you are it's something you should try you seem pretty good at dates I'm quite good at dates I'm not very I could never remember biochemistry at school but dates is something I can do you sound like an ideal candidate for our historical quiz only if it's Tudor I want when I was growing up I wanted to be Elizabeth the first so what what, what is it <laughs> I don't know if I can promise any let's see what we've got here um a lot of disasters going on here. No, nothing to do with uh, with the Tudor period, I'm afraid. Oh, we'll try me anyway. We'll see how we go. Okay, good man. So uh, it's five questions. It's essentially the week in uh, London over the last week, but not necessarily this year. So the 14th of January, 1437 is our first one. And uh, it's a fairly easy one. The Great Stone Gate at the south side of which bridge in London collapses, taking down two bridge arches and several houses with it? I tried to peek then. I have absolutely no idea. I said it's a fairly easy one. There was only one bridge in London at that point. So you've just no. got to name was the it bridge. London Bridge. It was London Bridge. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> uh, a, a fantastic start. Tuesday, the 15th of January, 1867. Uh, the ice on a lake in which park in London gives way while hundreds of people are skating on it? Dozens drown. Hyde Park. Not Hyde Park. It was a clever guess. I don't know. It's uh, it's Regent's Park Lake. I've never heard of this disaster Regent's before. Park Lake. No, neither have I. I confess. Okay, uh, one down, one up. Sixteenth of January, fifteen ninety nine. Poet laureate Edmund Spencer is buried in Westminster. His coffin is borne by other poets of the time. What do you think they threw into the grave with him? A quill. Yeah, you're not far off. You've got one of the two items. Uh, they threw pens. And, and what else did they throw into the grave of Poet Laureate Edmund Spencer? Is it very silly to say paper? <laughs> What's on the paper? Ink. <laughs> yeah, go on. It's like pulling teeth. It is like pulling teeth. I ate ink. I, I don't know. No, that's not a clue. That oh, was that a, wasn't a clue. That was an expression of despair. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not doing very well. You'll have to put me out of my misery. Poetry. 
Oh. And we'll say, what I'm going to say is... Uh, oh, prose. Well, poetry. In oh, fact. okay. Yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to give you that one because you were, you were most of the way there. I was nearly there. Thursday, the 17th of January, 1997. At which London courthouse does a jury decide that Simon Serafinowicz, the first man to be charged under the 1991 War Crimes Act, is medically unfit to stand trial? Which, uh, which courthouse did that happen at? The Old Bailey. It was the Old Bailey. Nice work. Which means that I think you're only one down and three up. This is looking pretty respectable, I've got to say, and still not a Tudor in sight. There we go, you see, no, not a crinoline anywhere. So, final one, uh, 18th of January, 1882. Alan Alexander Milne is born in Hampstead, North London. He would become a successful author, notable for which series of books? Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh it is... Well done, sir. Very good. I'm very proud of myself. Four out of five. Yes, nice work. Listen, we've uh, we've plugged uh, Silent Opera's work plenty there. W- what about you in the coming weeks, other than the whole Silent Opera project? What have you got going on? Work, all work and no play at the moment. I haven't I haven't yet got past the 10th of February. When when the 10th of February is gone, then it'll be on to past just new. But at the moment, the focus is the Silent Opera Lord Feo that we're working on here in Marlborough. Give us one more reminder of the website before we uh, before um, we call it a day. The website is you can book tickets at www.silentopera.co.uk. Oliver Clark, thanks for being here. And uh, if you could pass on uh, thanks as well to Callum Thorpe, who is upstairs uh, singing as we speak. A resident sex pest. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. Here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests Callum Thorpe, Oliver Clark, and Daisy Evans. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Rhea Heath, and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolf. Sing